Are you part of the Blue Ribbon campaign to put a ribbon around your tree to let healthcare workers know coast to coast that you care for them? Well, we at Context are. Welcome to Context. I'm Lorna Duick in front of a field hospital that has been built in Ontario, uh, my home city of Burlington, Ontario here. 93 beds for COVID-19 are being prepared here. In three other locations in Ontario, larger hospitals in London, Ontario, there they can handle 500 patients in a facility that's being repurposed from the agricultural fairgrounds. Unprecedented days in Canada. And what does it feel like to battle COVID, to be taken care of by those on the front lines? Rene Seguera will tell us his survivor's story from COVID-19. He's just 42 years old. Take a listen to what he's been through. You know, we are in difficult times. Um, and yes, you know, there is fear. There is fear all around us. All I ask is that you have hope. You put your faith in God that we are going to get through this. Not as individuals, but as a community, as a nation, as the world, we will get through this. And let's just do what we're being asked to stay home, social distancing. Um, you know, this is time for, for families to regain that, what family really is, is having dinners together, having game time together, enjoying each other. Um, because families are the backbone of, of our nation and what God has created. So uh, have hope in that, that we will get through this. We'll have the rest of Renee Seguera's story later in the program, but first let's go to a frontline worker, Dr. Dana Phillips and her husband, David. They are thinking about how they can make a difference in this crisis. David and Dana, baby Ray, what went through your mind when you saw the danger frontline workers are going through? Well, I'm fortunate to be on maternity leave right now because of uh, this one. And uh, we wanted to figure out how we could help uh, everyone who's on the front lines right now, all of my colleagues, and initially felt a little powerless being at home. And then we saw the design of the COVID box uh, being built in Taiwan. And Dave said, hey, I can adapt this and do this here. Uh, so then it became our mission to figure out how we could start making these and getting them out to my colleagues and those at other hospitals here because we really just wanted to keep everyone safe uh, while we couldn't be there, while I couldn't be there with them on the front lines. So what happened to you two as a couple? You've got a young baby and you start brainstorming about this protective device. David, what, what, was, what went on? Well, I guess Dana was showing me the... Uh... The WhatsApp group that the Sunnybrook doctors had, and one of the things that was posted on there was the uh, the protective intubation box from a doctor in Taiwan, and they were saying, "Wouldn't this be great to have at Sunnybrook?" And I thought, "It's a plastic box. Surely we can, surely we can make that box." So that's really how it all got started. That's how we had the idea. Okay, and it's been getting great reviews on GoFundMe. What difference could this box make, Dana? So intubation or putting in a breathing tube is one of the times that providers are most likely to be exposed to the virus uh, because aerosols or the, the small droplets of the virus um, are produced during that procedure and the provider needs to be right over the face of the patient. 
So this box is just a crude way to separate the doctor from the patient uh, in that most vulnerable time. And David, what hurdles are you facing in getting it manufactured? So one hurdle is just the price of the polycarbonate plastic uh, has doubled. Everybody's using these. You see them at the grocery store. You see them uh, at the bank, everywhere you go. So procuring that plastic has been one hurdle. Um, another one has been the, uh, the shipping and the distribution, working with different hospitals. Each hospital has their own requirements and they, they test it and they say, can you add this? Can you take that away? So just navigating um, that, that approval process. What do you think access will be like? Hospitals able to pick it up? You no doubt you're going to meet the GoFundMe goal. Are you, are you going to be able to start production and then actually get it to the front lines? Yep, we're uh, producing another batch today. We have uh, uh, we have a manufacturer lined up, and there's actually been people who've reached out to us all across the country that have stepped up and said, "I have some some plastic in storage. I have machines that are underutilized right now." So we've seen. We've seen groups already take our design and build them and distribute them to hospitals in Stratford, in, um, in British Columbia, Vancouver. There's been a group that's done that. So um, that's been a success in terms of getting these out quickly. Okay, Dana, what does it mean to you as a frontline emergency room doctor? You're also an instructor um, to see this, this kind of rallying. It's really been great. There's, you know, chats every night that everyone is dedicated to after a long day of work to, to sustain this project. It's really been just so encouraging to see everybody's heart to just keep people safe. You both, you both tuck into to your prayers and your faith in God uh, for many things in your life. How is that impacting your approach to this project and to COVID? COVID has been for us a time that we've been largely locked in our house like many people and it's it's hard to know how you can help. So this is just one small way that, uh, that we thought we could hopefully try and make a difference. And it's been, um, you know, it's been a great experience and very rewarding. Yeah, I think we're just very thankful that we have a, you know, a house that we can shelter in and, you know, food and all of those things to keep us comfortable. Uh, when other people don't have those things or other people have to leave their comfortable home and like we said, go to the front lines and do these procedures intubation where, you know, there's such a high risk of exposure. Um, so we just feel so blessed to be safe and just want to keep others safe. All the best you guys with the COVID box and I'm sure it will be making its way into more hospitals. Thank you for your good innovation. Thank you, Thank Laura. You. Next, we look at putting groceries in your home. Before COVID-19, one out of eight families struggled to do this. We'll find out who's making a difference with that need. Hi, I'm Graham, Executive Director at Food for Life, and I'm here to introduce that today we're launching our Good Soup. In partnership with Nouveau Taste, we're taking high quality rescued food from restaurants and food service that are hard to share out Think of it as a five pound bag of lettuce. It, it's hard to share out to an average person. And we're turning it into a good soup, something that is accessible for isolated seniors, people who are hard to house, living in hotels and motels during this time of challenge, and also people in community who may be quarantined or have trouble preparing their own meals. Good food from a good place. And believe it or not, it's really economical for us to produce. So if you wanna support the Good Soup Project, 
Go on our website and make a donation today and learn more. Okay, more frontline workers. Let's talk about those who bring us our food. Uh, from growers, farmers, delivery, production, all of that stream, including, of course, the grocery clerk. Loblaws says it's keeping shoppers at 25% of normal volume in its stores. Along the way, we came across Carmen Louie, an amazing frontline worker at Donald's Market in East Vancouver. We just had to share her with you. I worry for you guys as grocery clerks. What does it feel like to get up every day, not to be able to stay quarantined in your house, but to actually serve customers? I know that if we are still able to, to go and work, um, I think it's, you know, it's our job as well to do that. And I know that God had provided us the strength because he said in his word that I can do all things through Christ who gave me the strength. Carmen, we found out about you because before COVID even began, you had a special gift. You oh. would write down every customer's name. You keep books and you've written down over 7,000 names. You greet everybody by name. Oh my goodness, Lorna. It's really, it meant a lot to them. It feels like they are so special and they are. And you know, and they feel that um, you care, um, that I care. And a lot of times thought they said that, oh, I'm so special. They thought she's the only one, right? <laughs> and then the other customer comes and said, what? You know her name too? Yeah. So you've taken your gift for knowing people's names and that intimacy now that you've developed at Donald's Market, and you're mm -hmm. applying it actually to your love for God and the prices on people's food. <laughs> yes. What you're doing with price tags to encourage people during COVID. So if a customer has, let's say, uh, paying her grapes or her um, pear or apple is $8.28. And I said, guess what? It's $8.28. I said, what's $8.28? And I said, that's Romans $8.28. And I said, then I will say the verse. And for all things work together for good to them that love God according to his purpose. And I put his name. For all things work together for you, Lorna. You know, I, I personalize it for them. How does your boss feel about this? You know, they know, they're, they know that I'm Christians. They know I go to church. And I know that they also, um, they're very appreciative. I know that. And they're very, very happy. They're happy. Well, you've been a wonderful example to us, Carmen. Thank you for quoting scripture at the till. Is it a new idea for people? Do they know their Bible verses? Um, one, there's one that she knows. And sometimes we do exchange uh, verses. She would give me um, something in the book of Psalms. And I would then also give her like Psalm 91. <laughs> Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I memorized that whole thing. Even at the till, Lorna, if I'm not busy, if there's no customers, I'll be like in my head, I'll be like quoting scriptures. <laughs> from East Vancouver at Donald's Market. Thank you, Carmen Louie. Oh, thank you, Laura. It was such a pleasure to be on your show. Before COVID-19, one out of eight families in Canada struggled with putting food on the table each month. We'll take you now to the front lines of that need. Hamilton's Welcome In, a food bank, a thrift store, and a variety of community programs that serve children, youth, and seniors all who struggle with poverty. 
Here's how they are making a difference in the increased need for food help in this pandemic. Ruth Callback is with us now. And Ruth, you are normally the seniors coordinator, the volunteer coordinator. You've had to take care of the food bank area. What are the seniors going through? Oh, Lorna, that's a good question. I, I think it's a whole mix of things. So for many of our seniors, um, they are isolated on the best of days, but they have the added pressure of perhaps not having enough money to go for food. They, they most of them would not have vehicles to, to get food. And so it's the whole public transportation and all of those kinds of things. Some people are doing well. We've been trying to match up our seniors with volunteers who will phone them each day to check in. So for some seniors, this is amazing. And they're like loving this because they have never had that before. And so, um, it's it's lovely to watch these conversations that are happening that started out as check-ins and now are conversations of friendship that happen for an hour or more each day. So we're trying to build in supports. We're trying to deliver groceries to them and other essential items. I was speaking with somebody yesterday who who is self-isolating and we're trying, we're delivering food to her and she doesn't have money for food, so all of that. And then before she goes, she goes, well, I'm just gonna pop over to welcome in because I wanna, I'll just drop off something. I'm like, no, 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 you're not going outside. Like, what are you gonna drop off? And she's like, I just have a few cans of food that I wanna make sure you guys have enough to give out. So it's such a mix. There's, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's generosity, there's gritty determination. It's all over the map. Are we getting enough volunteers in Canada to these front lines? It's a complicated question. I, I see so much generosity of people offering to volunteer, but there's also limits, right? And so um, typically we run our food bank with, with many, many volunteers each day, some of whom are very vulnerable themselves. So we've had to shut down our building to volunteers. And so that impacts them because this is their friendships. This is their structure for life. So it's that balance of how do we look out for the most vulnerable in our society and yet um, be doing the protectionist things that we're supposed to be doing in COVID for society. So it's really tricky. Ruth, one of the dynamics here is that this kind of becomes a leveler. Everybody is stuck in their home. Everyone is, is lonely. What are you experiencing about coming together all on equal ground? The vulnerability that we are all experiencing can be a leveler between people who traditionally live very vulnerable lives, perhaps through poverty or mental illness or whatever the reason, they're used to being close to the edge. Um, and many of us are not. We have a lot of cushion built into our lives and a lot of um, safety around us. And so now perhaps we're, we're seeing what it's like to experience more of that vulnerability. For me, one of the most beautiful things of this crisis is watching some of our community members who are coming for help and how generous and gritty and determined and beautiful they are in the midst of this. And I have so much to learn from them. And so I'm grateful to them for showing us a bit more of the way of how to live vulnerably. Well, thank you there at Welcome In for you guys being on the front line and here's your how people can get in touch with the Welcome In, helping hundreds of people on the front lines there in Hamilton on the most neediest of places. So thank you very much, Ruth Callback. It's a pleasure. Thank you. There are and now joining me is Jamie Vanderberg, the Executive Director of Welcome In.
what is social distancing like in a, a frontline care center for vulnerable people? Well, it's a challenge. We have had to close many of our programs, like the children's programs uh, and our thrift store, but we have managed to keep up and expand actually our food bank. So now if you look at the food bank, instead of people coming in the doors and having options to pick from, uh, they're now met at the door in a kind of grab-and-go hamper style system. Um, so there's less interaction, um, but we're still managing to serve uh, more people than, than uh, before the crisis. And who are those people? Who are these the vulnerable that need a food help out? Well, for the most part at this point, we have seen people who have traditionally accessed food banks coming out to our food bank. We haven't seen a lot of new people coming, um, but we do imagine with the economic downturn that that's going to change very quickly. Okay. And how can people help, Jamie? What, what do you need the public to do on a frontline project like this? Well, on the food bank side of things, we we need donations. We have uh, typically run the food bank with one staff and 50 volunteers, a team of 50 volunteers that kind of rotate in and out. We're now running it with four paid staff. So costs go up. We've lost the income from our thrift store. So some of our revenues have dried up. And although it's helpful to have food donations brought to the door, the reality is with the spread of COVID-19, it's better for us to receive donations and do bulk buys through the grocery stores and work with Hamilton Food Share. So right now in a time of crisis, the best way to support a community center is simply to donate. And even our seniors programs, uh, the seniors visitation program, we have a number of volunteers that are doing daily check-ins with the seniors. Um, and so we, we have a need for some volunteers there, but at the same time, what we also need is financial support to increase staff and capacity during this time. Okay, so go to your website. Is that the best way to donate online? It is for us, yeah, yeah, welcomein.ca. Okay, welcomein.ca, frontline there of Hamilton. Jamie Vanderberg, thank you so much. Thank you. When a Calgary police officer was diagnosed with COVID-19, it was a sobering reminder of the risk they too face. Abuse shelters have been leaning heavily on help from police. In Vancouver, they report a 300% increase in calls to the women's shelter there. All across Canada, homes are under stress. Here's Megan Walker from London's Abuse Centre for Women. Hi, Megan. How are the lineups trying to get into the shelter system for abuse? So it's um, a really difficult situation. We are definitely seeing a spike. Um, in Hamilton, they've reported a 30% increase in number of uh, incidents being reported. York Region is 22%. So we're, we are starting to see the spike now, which is consistent with what we see globally. Um, we have been able to make arrangements with certain facilities in the City of London um, to take extra women in. So not necessarily a shelter, but an, a safe place for them to go. And we've uh, developed a protocol with London Police Service. So so when they are responding to a 911 call and the woman is being abused and indicates she wants to leave, they can take that woman immediately and place her in a safe facility. Megan, what has COVID exacerbated? What might a home situation 
look like before it flares up to a call to get out and get sheltered? It's not more men being abusive. It's existing abusive men who are exercising that power and authority over the woman right now. It used to be the woman would go to work, for instance, and be away from the partner, the abusive partner, or the abusive partner would go to work and be away from that woman. And that gave, first of all, space, but also an opportunity for women to reach out for help. Also escalated the situation because you're in close quarters, maybe, or you have children, um, or there's frustration, or there's financial issues. So all of those things don't cause the abuse, but they're uh, factors we need to consider when we talk about the high-risk women are in right now. In these days of lockdown, of social isolation, how do we, do we pick up the phone and call someone who we suspect is at risk? What do we do? We need for people to be the eyes and ears of the community. So if you're a neighbor and you hear shouting or things breaking, we're not asking for you to become detectives or investigators. We're asking you to think, wow, that, it, that does not sound good, and call 911 and allow the 911 police officers who respond to take care of the situation and do the investigation. And in addition to that, of course, we need the police officers to have a safe place to take these women. And that currently exists. It's a temporary um, response and it's a very expensive response for us, uh, which we're not funded, but it is a response that's needed in this time of isolation that can potentially save the life of that woman and her children. Thank you for being on the front line in London and for reminding us that we all need to keep our ears and eyes open to encourage and care in this need. Oh, thank you so much, Lauren, and you take good care of yourself. Coming up, a young dad's harrowing journey with a 20-day battle with COVID. It will tell us what the fight is all about. That's next. It was on March 21 when Rene Segura was intubated for COVID-19 and he joins us now. Rene, it is terrific to see you have recovered from COVID. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. Um, you know, I'm still uh, in recovery, uh, but I'm feeling great. I'm not 100% yet. Um, I, do, I still have a, a lingering cough that it's going to be with me to six to eight weeks. Um, also with the loss of 30 pounds. Uh, I lost a lot of muscle mass, so I'm trying to recover that back. Obviously, not the 30 pounds, <laughs> but uh, just trying to to get better. How did you know you had COVID? I didn't. I didn't know. Um, I arrived at um, ER on March 20th with respiratory problem. Um, you know, I just thought. Uh, I'm, I'm just having some issues. I'm just have a cold, um, you know, nothing serious. I didn't really actually want to go. Um, but it was my wife, um, who said to me, Renee, we got to go. We have to go. You know, you were tested. Uh, so I wasn't tested. I was, uh, went to an assessment clinic the day before, which they said to me, I just had a cold, um, and they sent me home. Um, so I, in my head, I was like, I'm fine. I'm good. I just need to rest. 
But you got to ER and uh, it was chaos there. You actually saw somebody beside you die yeah, and you well, realized you were going to have to be taken into a higher level of care yourself. Explain what it was like. Yeah, um, I saw the gentleman alive um, within seconds. Um, his body started shaking, doctors backed up, nurses uh, backed up, and all of a sudden it was um, like they call it a code red and, and they all jumped in to resuscitate, resuscitate the gentleman. Um, you know, there was at least uh, 12 people jumping in to help, um, you know, decompressions, do what they had to do. But unfortunately, this gentleman, my heart goes out to his family, um, is he didn't make it. And you began to pray. Tell me about what happened for you spiritually then. I prayed, but at the same time, I had a conversation. You know, I saw death in front of me. And if I could kneel down, I would have kneeled down. And I would have said, you know, death, not today. And that's what I said. Death, not today. You know, I put the armor of God in me. I have the shield of faith. Um, I surround myself by, with God's angels. And I will not be taken down because today is not my day. I have my wife waiting for me. I have my three children waiting for me. Um, I was coming home. I, there was no doubt in my mind. And at that moment, um, I felt the presence of God in my but, life, around me. So. But it did get worse, Renee, and you had to next be intubated. Yeah. Tell me what that experience was like. Well, it, it, it was a battle. It was a, a fight that I was about to go into. I was going to be victorious. That death was not going to take me down. I was told by doctors that I was having breathing problems, that <clears throat> I would have to go on uh, um, intubation. Uh, life for and at that moment I called my wife and I told her that I wasn't sure when I was going to see her again but I was going to see her. You remember that nurses actually sang Christian praise songs in this program? Uh, I, I do remember um, in my sleep hearing some some sounds you know angelic sounds um, but my wife told them hey Renee really loves um, worship music and one of the nurses sure enough uh played it you know she had it in the background god is good god has been around me protecting me he cleared the way to get me to where i am um i was still in icu at the time um gave me doctors gave me nurses you know a team that was uh compassionate loving caring um lifted my spirits and never let me give up. So uh, I can't thank them enough because without them, I wouldn't be here. Renee, thank you very much for telling us what it's like to receive frontline care from our wonderful nurses and doctors. Yeah. Thank you for your faith. It's great to see you healthy. Thank you so much. What a story from Renee Segarra. It reminds us what this battle is all about. So 
We've left a way you can help those on the front lines today. All of the agencies we feature today are at contextbeyondtheheadlines.com. You heard their need. Cash donations are part of how we can all join the front lines. Together, let's do our part. From all of us at Context, I'm Lorna Duick. Stay tuned for next week when we look at care for seniors in COVID-19.